0: through Luke until we get to Easter. We started back with the birth of Jesus before Christmas, and we're going to his resurrection at Easter and looking at that. Um, as as I was looking through the book of Luke, it was difficult to choose what passages to preach and what not to preach, but if I had preached every passage in Luke, we would be in it for about three years and y'all would shoot me. Um, and so I would enjoy it, but I I don't know. Anyway, so we're going to be in Luke 13 today. And uh, this is a passage that I chose intentionally, but I didn't know it was going to be as difficult as it is. Um, And so I I pray uh, God's grace on us as we study together, as we wrestle with this passage together. This is one of those passages where, You know, if you've ever actually read all the way through one of the Gospels where you come across some things that Jesus said that you're like, man, I really kind of wish he wouldn't have said that. That's not fun, not easy. and It is kind of difficult. This is one of those passages and we're going to, we're going to wrestle with it today. Who's in? It's a question we ask all the time. We ask it in all sorts of ways. We ask it to see what teams are going to be in the college football playoffs We ask to see who's in, as in who's going to come to the movie with us. We ask it motivationally at times. Like, are you with me? Um, Sometimes we think about our world and that inquiring minds want to know who's in jail. Maybe. It's kind of interesting. I was uh, listening to the sheriff talk this week, and uh, he was talking about how their jail... uh, Log has been down. For some reason, they had some issues with the website, and they've had all sorts of people calling and asking about that for some reason. You may want to know who's in jail or who's not in jail. Um, It's a valid question. Sometimes we want to know uh, more important things, like who's in or who's out, like after the unfortunate loss of the Red Raiders yesterday to those stinking cowboys up north. Are they still in the top 25 or not? That's an important question. Or sometimes, we like to ask questions like this ever-so-famous children's book, who's in the loo? From Britain? I mean, you just never know. You might be trying to find out whether the loo, the bathroom, is occupied or not, or if one of your toddlers just locked the door and shut it and there's no one in there, or you would might want to know if there's an elephant in there or not, and you're going to have to clean up that mess. Or the one time where I was on the phone for one of the first times Ronnie and I ever talked, and I was at our house in Fresno before we moved here, and I was at home doing grad school, and... Uh, watching the boys. I was a stay-at-home dad, so I feel for all of you stay-at-home moms, you are wonderful people, or stay-at-home dads, if there's any of you out there. Um, And that is a harder job than I ever imagined it would be. But I'm on the phone with Ronnie talking to him about coming to work here at Cactus, coming to work with y'all, and the boys were really quiet. Which, as you know, they were like three and one at the time. They were a little bitty. And uh, I walk into my my bathroom and we had this glass shower there um and the boys were inside it with the door closed they had all their clothes on but they had found my shaving cream had it all over them all over the floor they couldn't even stand up they had it all over the walls of the shower and i was like oh uh, y'all are lucky i'm on the phone talking to somebody Talking to a church right now because otherwise I might not be saying very nice things. You just never know. It could have been worse. (laughs) It could have been like the time when Xander found his diaper and spread it all over his room, and Sarah was at home for that one. That one was fun. But who's in? Who's out? Where are we? What are we doing? Who's in there? These are important questions. Today, as Jesus, in our passage, Jesus is interacting with the disciples and the, and the crowd of people that are following him, as he's um, doing all these things, he is healing all sorts of people. They're questioning um, whether or not people can be healed. Um, and and uh, th- they don't like that he's healing on the Sabbath as though healing is a bad thing. These religious people have made their religion about comparing themselves to others, rule following and exclusion, and are asking questions like who's in and who's out. And is this Jesus dude the one who's in and the one that we should follow? Take a look at Luke 13 verses 18 through 21. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? He said, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its limbs. And he asked again, so what should I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever messed with 60 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. That's a, like, she'd be feeding the whole town, which is maybe not a bad thing. But when you look at that, a small little bit of yeast will go a long, long way. In fact, it would be the starter that they would use, and they would use that same yeast starter throughout the year that would keep their bread going until what we know as Lent, Um, which came from the Jewish feasts and festivals where they would uh, do what we call spring cleaning. And they would go through their house and they played a game with the kids to teach them about God being a part of their lives and the redemption that God provided. And they would get all the yeast out of their house and they would like hide little bits and pieces of it for the kids to find. And they would clean it out of their house. It was literally spring cleaning. This is the idea, but it was only during the Feast of Unleavened Bread le- leading up to Passover that they would have no yeast in their bread. The rest of the year they had yeast in their bread, and it all started with one little lump, and it lasted them all year. The mustard seed, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's a little bitty, itsy-bitsy seed, but it can grow a plant Up to over 8 feet tall. (coughs) Excuse me. In Daniel, it talks about uh, uh, the same sort of seed being grown to where it was big enough that birds could make their nests in it. From such a small seed that the kingdom of God will grow and expand in such massive ways that we could never imagine what just a little seed might do. He uses two short parables to make a, sh- a point that for someone from a Jewish mindset who had made their life all about following rules and who's in and who's out, that this little seed could cause such amazing growth for the kingdom of God, that, that, that the kingdom of God is ever-expanding and ever-growing. But not in the ways that we typically think of. Jesus reverses. In fact, the the, the commentaries say this is the great reversal of the kingdom of God. The, the Jews kind of expected that they were going to be a shoe in for the kingdom of God and for what was going to happen. And so, but it doesn't always just include those who we think are going to be in or who ought to be in in our opinion because most of the time it starts with us and everybody else is compared against us and not against something else there's a a really classic spanish dish called paella and it's really simple combination of just a few ingredients it has rice Seafood and a handful of vegetables. But other than these few ingredients, there's one dish. I mean, there's one spice that flavors this dish. It's a spice called saffron. And it's what gives the rice this yellow hue, this yellow tone. Saffron is a fascinating uh, herb, if you will, spice. It's prized for its qualities. Um, both as a spice and as a coloring agent. It's been traded for a thousand years, but it can't be made. It's harvested from flowers. When a certain type of crocus flowers and bloom delicate inner structures of the flower, the stigmas and the styles are carefully plucked by hand, and these deep maroon thread-like parts are then dried. But because of the difficulty related to cultivating and harvesting saffron, it is the most expensive of all the spices. It's more expensive, in fact, pound for pound than gold. But luckily, just a little bit goes a long way. Just a small pinch of saffron crushed with a mortar and pestle We'll season an entire dish of paella large enough to feed a dozen people. It doesn't just infuse the dish with the telltale bright yellow color, but it imparts this heady, earthy aroma and a flavor that leaves a deep impression, both on your palate and on your memory. If you've ever gone to Walmart or, or United and picked up one of those packets of rice that are flavored with saffron, you know what we're talking about. It's punchy, it's, but it's, it's savory, it's good. Interestingly, the saffron seed is very similar to a mustard seed in size, but it, it has such an amazing and overpowering effect on what it touches. A little bit goes a long way and leaves a lasting impre- impression it's a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of god is like the powerful m- message of inclusion of all the world jesus says it's not simply a proclamation that god only blesses one nation over the other that god but, but rather the the proclamation that god would bless All nations, all peoples, (coughs) and all would be included in the who's in crowd. But Jesus continues and he doesn't stop there. Because the conversation gets just a little bit more difficult. Unfortunately, who's in and who's out is not as simple as it's bigger than you think. In fact, there is a component that is key, and it's not just about proximity, it's about relationship. Take a look. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand out knocking and pleading. Master, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you'll say, we ate and drank with you and taught, and you taught in our streets. And he's going to reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People are going to come from east and west and north and south and are going to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who will be, who are last, who will be first, and the first will be last. May the Lord bless the hearing of his word. This is a difficult section of Scripture, a a difficult passage. And it's odd in some ways because we've just seen the inclusive and expansive nature of the kingdom of God with the two parables that Jesus told, the one about the mustard seed and the one about the yeast. And he's just talked about how those who will be touched by the effects of the growth of the kingdom of God will be many. Or maybe better, maybe the better interpretation of that is not how the kingdom of God will grow, but who it's available to. That the kingdom of God is ever more expansively available to the ends of the earth. Philippians 2 talks about all beings of the earth will at one day bow their knee before the Father. But now we get to the passages where it's almost like the who's in the loo book. Sometimes you don't want to know the answer. Or maybe it just means that things are going to get a little bit more difficult. The rub that we have is that he has just said that the kingdom of God is available to more people than we might ever imagine. Or maybe more people than we might want it to be available to. I'm going to be real honest with you. There's some people that I'm not sure I want there with me. And I'm probably there for some of you. But he says that there are some things that we need to consider about it, what being in the kingdom of God takes. Is it available? Absolutely. But to choose to be in the kingdom of God takes a couple of things. This who's in sort of language is difficult for us today because we live in a, to- in a world where tolerance is king. There's hardly any place for us to call a spade a spade or a sin a sin. It's like we've missed how all this is supposed to work too. And I'm not suggesting that we stand on a street corner and announce everybody's sin or call out the sins of everybody on the face of the earth. That's not what I'm saying. So if that's what you heard, that's not what I said. Don't think that. But we live in a world that says you can't judge me. Isn't that what your Bible says? To to which I would say you haven't read that correctly. And then they proceed to use that as license to do whatever makes them feel good in the moment. The problem is, in this passage according to Jesus, judgment is looming. As I said, this is one of those passages that I wish Jesus had never said. But he did, so let's deal with it. Timothy Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, said that in one of his after-service discussions with a woman, uh, she came to him and told him that the very idea of a God who judges was offensive. And he said, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? She looked puzzled, and he continued. He said, I respectfully urge you to consider your cultural location when you find the Christian teaching about hell offensive. I went on to point out, he says, that secular Westerners get upset by the Christian doctrines of hell, but they find biblical teaching about turning the other cheek and forgiving enemies appealing particularly when it comes to others doing it for them. I then asked her to consider how someone from a very different culture sees Christianity. In traditional, particularly Eastern societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends their deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment is no problem at all. That society is repulsed by aspects of Christianity that Western people enjoy and are attracted by the aspects that secular Westerners can't possibly understand. Why, I concluded, should Western cultural sensibilities be the final court in which to judge whether Christianity is valid? I asked the woman gently whether she thought her culture superior to non-Western ones. She immediately answered no. Well, then, I asked, Keller goes on to say, why should your culture's objections to Christianity trump theirs? Ouch. We struggle with passages like this because even if we don't agree with our culture, in some sense, our American way of life has gotten us so accustomed to being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, because it, we think that we have the right to, that we don't like being told there are limits. That there are parameters inside of which we are meant to live and that are there for our benefit and for our safety and character and Livelihood. But Jesus challenges even us, not just those who were present in his hearing then. He says that there's a couple of things that determine who's in and who's out. For many of the people in Jesus' hearing, they were Jews. And so they had this understanding of who God was and they had made what their understanding of God was be lived out in the way that they could prove that they lived the right life by doing the right things and they could point to the laws that they followed and they followed them well. And that's really easy to hold our distance from because we're a people of grace. We're not under the law. But the problem is, we make a law of grace. We don't allow grace to expand our worldview and expand the way that we think and change us. Because if grace isn't changing us, it's no grace at all. Grace without the looming possibility of judgment is not grace. Without judgment, we cannot possibly have any need for grace. Without relationship, there is no grace. And what Jesus says is simple proximity. Hear this, church. Just because you grew up attending church every time the doors were open, that's your law of grace. That does not equal faithful following of Jesus. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't be in church or be a part of the church. It is absolutely a vital part of growing who you are and growing into the likeness of Jesus. When you accept him and put him on in baptism, you become a part of his family, the church, and you absolutely better be a part of it. You cannot do Jesus without the church. You cannot be a part of Jesus without the church. You can't be in the church without Jesus. They go together. They go hand in hand. But, to suggest that one equals the other is the exact same form of religion that the Jews had told everybody that they had to live up to. And it's just not the case because what you end up doing is simply being in proximity to Jesus, not actually knowing him yourself. Being in proximity just means that you're standing outside the door when the door closes because God has sent Jesus back The trumpets have sounded. God has come back to earth and said, this kingdom is full, final, and complete. But you were only in proximity. You didn't actually know him, and you didn't actually follow him. There's a difference. But because of relationships, Because we are in relationship with Jesus, there are some things that come along with that that help us maintain that relationship. We have parameters on what we do and what we don't do because of our life in Christ. Not to get our life in Christ. We don't do what we do as followers of Jesus to get into relationship with Jesus, He made the relationship possible. We simply accept that, but then that's not where the relationship ends. But far too often, the way that we talk about this and the way that we do it is I accepted Christ. The church has done it really well in the past. We have done a terrible job of discipling our, our kids. We, we, we had this idea and this mindset that what we would do is the most important thing was accept Jesus and be baptized. And when you're baptized, everything's good. You've got the Spirit, and we're done. The problem is nowhere in Scripture do you just get the Spirit and all of a sudden magically know what it means to follow Jesus. You learn to follow Jesus by walking with others who are also walking with Him. Similar to my relationship with my wife, When I chose Jesus at my baptism, I rejected other allegiances. I said that my relationship with him would form my thoughts and actions and character. There are things that I choose to participate in and and, and be in and be around or not be in or be around because of my relationship with him. Just as my relationship with my wife has called me to live my life differently than I did when I was single. I don't simply get to go out and hang out and talk to other women, just whatever. It doesn't work like that. I put parameters and things in place to protect my relationship with my wife. Just in the same way we do the same thing with our relationship with Jesus. You see, grace is opposed to merit. That is the idea of thinking that we deserve something because we're in relationship. Or because we do something to deserve that relationship. But if grace points to the relationship that we have because of what Jesus has done, then maybe we ought to pay attention to what he did in order to make that relationship possible. He put all sorts of effort into it. Grace is opposed to merit, but it is not opposed to effort. You see, it is our relationship with Jesus that will shape our actions. It doesn't mean we will never mess up or have things that we need to work on. But just because you're in proximity doesn't mean that you have arrived. The problem for many of us is that when we ask the question, like these folks here in Luke 13, who's in and who's out, it's not so that we can make ourselves better so that we can know more about who Jesus is and who we are because of the relationship that we have in Him. It's so that we can justify ourselves and make ourselves feel better. We use our comparison of others to show how good we are rather than how good He is. When we compare ourselves to other, others, we lose sight of the relationship that we're called to, and we hold others at bay, and we use ourselves as the measuring block rather than the cornerstone on which the church is built. While we're not Jews, many of us have inherited a mindset that says proximity equals relationship. We've been told that a relationship means that we go to church every time the doors are open. But if church attendance was all it took to be in a relationship with Jesus, then I must be Italian because I went to Olive Garden this week. That's absurd. I didn't actually go to Olive Garden this week. It just sounded good. even though we aren't Jews, if we aren't careful, we begin to think it is our actions that earn our relationship with Jesus. Which once again leads us down the road of comparison. Looking at the actions of what others have or don't have or do or don't do. Which causes us to ask the question of who's in and who's out. So what we have is a challenge from Jesus number 1 not to take ourselves too seriously but that we should take him at his word You see our relationship with Jesus is not something that simply happens by osmosis but it happens by intentionality by seeking to know him it happens through spending time listening to who He says he is and who God says he is and then who he says we are because of who he is he makes us better yes but we should also want to be better because we know him and because he knows us just like I want to be a better husband because I know my wife she makes me a better person because she doesn't expect me to just be the stupid jerk of a husband I was 12 years ago. If I was still that same guy, I wouldn't blame her for running. And if I'm still the same guy I am, the same man I am today in another 12 or 15 or 20 years, then somebody better hit me on the head. Because I'm not growing in my my love and in my... In my worth, it has nothing to do with my worth, but I'm not growing in my responsibility to her as a husband. She has given herself to me fully and completely. And if I'm not growing in that, how am I honoring the relationship that she has blessed me with? It's the same way with Jesus, y'all. How will we honor the relationship that he has blessed us with? The motivating factor here is the key. It's Jesus. We are motivated by our relationship with him, which will call us to consider our actions. But our actions aren't what get us into relationship with him. They're what grow it. There is a massive reversal, Jesus says, in the way the kingdom works. It is not those who think that by simple proximity that they will be in, but by those who choose to know and not only know, but follow Jesus in their thoughts, their actions, their steps, and in their character development. Who will be in? It has to be both. Knowing Him, And following him. Our relationship with Jesus is key. Which informs our actions. But it must come in that order. You want to know who's in? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the only person that you should be worried about whether they're in or not is you. But guess what? If you're in a relationship with Jesus, you're going to want others to be in a relationship with Him too because you're going to know how good it is. I've known Sarah longer than any of you, but I want all of you to get to know her because I know how amazing she is. And that's not because I want to keep her to myself. But if I am in a relationship that blesses me, that that, that I want to honor, I'm going to tell you about it. And so the only reason you should be worried about whether somebody else is in is because you want them to be blessed by the same loving, honoring relationship that you're in with Jesus. That's going to be a part of it. If you're not proud of your relationship with Jesus, why in the world would you tell anybody about it? Why would you be in his church? Why would you want to be a part of his family? If you are considering the thought of who's in, unless it's I want you to know my Jesus because he is that good, you're in the comparison game. Unless you're asking it in the motivational sort of way. Who's in? I'm going to follow Jesus. Who's in? Are you with me? Who's in can also be an invitation. That's the only way following Jesus should call us to ask who's in is by an invitation to walk with him as you are walking with him. That's what Paul said, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. That's the question that Jesus leaves in those who were following his hymns. Those who were with him, that's the question he leaves with them. Who's in? Are you in? Are you with me? He says, who's in? Are you in? Are you all in? He wants every bit of you, If you're not, why not? What's stopping you? Maybe it's some questions, and there's some valid questions about what the love of God looks like and how that works in your life. This passage is really stinking difficult, and it can be hard to accept. But grace wouldn't make a hill of beans if it didn't mean that we had to accept it. And we had to choose it. Maybe for some of you today, it's time to make a commitment to following Jesus. To get away from just being in proximity to Him. Accept His commitment to you that He lived, lived in, giving His life on the cross to free you from the bondage of sin and death. That His actions, showing His desire for His relationship with you, that He didn't stop at simply saying He loved you, He lived it. Choose today whether you are going to be in. Are you in? Maybe you want to show that through your commitment to him in baptism. But your commitment to him in baptism isn't just to him. It's also to his church. It's also to his people. And it's also to inviting other people to ask them, are you in? Are you in? He's worth it. It's totally worth it. It doesn't mean it's going to make everything better. In fact, it's going to make some things really, really difficult. But it's so worth it. Because I'm never, ever alone. And it's not even saying that you're always going to follow him perfectly. But it's saying that you are going to commit to walking with Him, to being in relationship, to seeking Him in everything that you do and allow that relationship to form and shape your life for the rest of your life till death do us part, except for that part has no grounds here, does it? Because it's beyond death. If you want to make a commitment to Jesus... Today's, today's the time. Right now. Or maybe you want to ask some more questions about that. Call me. My number's in the bulletin. Grab one. It's Not in the bulletin. It's all over the place. Find me. I'll give you a card. He's worth it. Are you in? Who's in? Who's with me? If you want to respond to Jesus, if you want to commit to him you haven't done that yet man why are you waiting he's worth it i don't offer an invitation very often but it's open it's always open he always is ready and willing and waiting to accept you he already has he already died for you two thousand years ago are you in and if you're already in make a commitment today to walk with him to be intentional To seek Him daily in everything that you do. And to share that love that He has given you with everybody you come in contact. He's worth it. Are you in? Let's stand and sing.